This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Mission Viejo Church of Christ. What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Uh, if you're with, with us for the first time, we want to let you know, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we want to let you know that you are our honored guest and you're always welcome to this church building whenever the doors are open. And we believe you've come to the right place because I don't think you'll find a finer church in all of Mission Viejo. Brother Ed, thank you so much for leading us in those songs this morning. Sing and be happy. I really, really appreciate that song. We have a lot to sing about and to be happy about if you're a member of the Lord's kingdom. Amen. Greatest kingdom on earth. Uh, so, Brother Ed, thank you so much for uh, leading us in songs and for a wonderful Bible class this morning as we think about this concept of evangelism, which is really found in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to be studying today. Uh, Don, thank you for your communion thought this morning, your meditation to center us and focus us on the cross. If you didn't know, today is Valentine's Day. Amen. And so I want to say happy Valentine's Day to everyone out there today, especially our mothers and our daughters and our sisters and grandmothers and so forth and so on. Happy, happy Valentine's Day. Do you guys know the history of Valentine's Day before we get into the sermon this morning? You know the history? So I didn't know the history either. I, I, what the <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I didn't know the history, so I had to go look it up. Uh, and what I found was pretty disturbing. You know, the history of Valentine's Day began in the Roman Empire as a pagan holiday. Just like much of our uh, kind of Christian holidays, they have some kind of pagan roots, and then the Catholic Church tried to uh, create another holiday to kind of combat that. So uh, there was this, this pagan holiday in the Roman Empire, and the Romans would sacrifice offerings to the god called uh, Lupa. And Lupa was actually a she-wolf. So, so sacrifices were made to this god, and what it would do, what it was designed to do, was to help the women um, be more fertile. 
So what would happen during this festival is that the women would come out into the streets and they would line up in the streets and the men would dress up as she-wolves and they would run down the street and women would put their hands out and then the she-wolves that were really men dressed up would smack their hand and that was supposed to help with fertility. So, I, you know, you can do what, that what you want to. But anyway, so there was a saint called St. Valentine, and he was of Rome, and he created a festival of his own in order to combat this, this paganistic ritual. And his, his festival was really geared towards love and towards marriage. And we know that St. Valentine later on in his life was martyred, was martyred for his faith. And many men over the years have been put to death as well because they forgot Valentine's Day. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you know, this month we're studying the first four chapters of the book of Acts, right? And what we stated last week is that there was something really special about the church during this time. The church was made up of a group of about 120 people, and Jesus ascended up to heaven, and what he said to his disciples, look, you're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And this group of 120 people were able to preach this message across the world as they knew it, and we saw the church grow by leaps and bounds. So this is just a really moving and powerful time within our church's history. The book of Acts is amazing. Last week we talked about the lives of the apostles after Jesus ascended up into glory and we talked about his promise to them and today in chapter 2 we're going to actually read about the Holy Spirit taking up residence in the lives of the early disciples on this day called the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2, if you didn't know, is probably the most well-known scripture amongst members of the Church of Christ, right? That, that is our text, Acts chapter 2. So if we know something well, we really know Acts chapter 2. And it's, uh, uh, Acts chapter 2 is a place where we take a lot of our theology concerning salvation. So we know this book really well. So uh, what I'm attempting to do this morning is to shed some light on some things that you may not have considered before as we, as we read Acts chapter 2. So if you have a copy of your Bibles this morning, open up to Acts chapter 2. And what I want to do is I want to read the first um, eight verses, if you will. So don't worry about changing the slides yet. You guys open up your Bibles. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Scripture says here, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment 
because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. We know chapter 2 begins on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was a Jewish festival that occurred 50 days after the Passover. We all know this. I'm not sharing information that is new to you. 50 days after the Passover, it was a day where the Jews gathered together from all over the world to celebrate the festival of weeks, the festival of weeks. And during the festival of weeks, the Jews would come together and they would enjoy a harvest time and then they would take the first fruits of their harvest and offer them to the Lord at the temple. And Pentecost, if you didn't know, also commemorates the giving of the law to Moses from Mount Sinai. So this was a very special time of year for the Jew and many Jews were all gathered from all around the world. And it was a, an amazing, amazing time. People were excited. People were fired up. And then we see the Holy Spirit show up. Mike, go to this first slide, if you will. The Holy Spirit shows up. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This was something really, really interesting here. Really unique. You see... The scripture here is talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit. And baptism of the Holy Spirit was something different than kind of what they heard and learned about in John chapter 14. This was a new concept and a new idea to them. So they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So if we talk about what a tongue is, we touched on it last week just a little bit. A tongue is another language, okay? Now, there's a lot of confusion about what a tongue is. Some people say that when you speak in tongues, it's a heavenly language between you and God that only you and God can understand, and they take that concept from 1 Corinthians, I believe. But we understand tongues to be a language, one of the languages across the world. So when they spoke in tongues, they were able to speak in another language, and the Spirit enabled them to do that. It was very powerful. Very, very important for the spread of the gospel to the region. Next slide, Mike. Acts chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Before we get there, I don't know if you guys have ever spent time really considering this. Um, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit was given to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20 in verse number 22, and just look at what it says. John chapter 20, and verse number 22. And I'm not going to read it. I just want you to turn there and look at it, and you can kind of see what it says there. If I'm not mistaken, what I see in that passage is that Jesus uh, was crucified, and he appeared to his disciples. And in John chapter 20, and I believe in verse number 22, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Is that what your Bible says, or am I in the wrong verse? So 
so could it be that they received the Spirit then, or what was going on? And then we flip to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and then we see the Holy Spirit show up again, so there's this confusion. Now, did the disciples have the Holy Spirit then, or did they get into Acts chapter 2 later on? What was it? Maybe they received the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20 and verse number 22, and then in Acts they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which gave them miraculous powers. We just kind of don't know, but that's the thought process and the idea, okay? So baptism of the Holy Spirit, just a side note, gave the apostles the ability to speak in languages other than their native tongue. What was the language that the disciples, the early apostles, spoke? Do you guys remember? Starts with an A, Aramaic. They spoke the language Aramaic. However, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak in other languages so that the Jews could hear the gospel. Now, that's really important. The Jews were able to hear the gospel because the disciples spoke in a different language. You see, the disciples had to adapt the way they communicated the gospel so that people could understand. I want to say that one more time. The disciples had to adapt in the way they communicated the gospel so that the people there could hear the gospel. Did you not know culture changes and so does the way people communicate? Once upon a time, not long ago, the way people used to communicate oftentimes is they would write letters, right? I was talking to my grandfather not too long ago. Uh, he tells me of the time where he was in the Korean War, and the way, the only way that he can communicate to my grandmother was that he had to write a letter, and then that letter would be sent, and then my grandmother could read it. Once upon a time, not long ago, the way we used to have to communicate with people is we had to place phone calls to their homes. You guys remember that? So I know this is crazy, right, young people? We can't believe this, right? But once upon a time, there was a house phone that had a cord connected to it. And you couldn't move too far without getting yanked by that cord. You remember that? And the bad thing about having the cord is that you're, you, you had to be right there and your parents can hear everything in your conversation, right? You remember that? So that was the way we had to communicate. We had to call physically to someone's house in order to talk to them. But then advancement in technology came, and we were able then to shoot emails. Remember, you got mail. You guys don't remember that, do you? We used to be able to email each other, and that was a really cool and exciting way to communicate. And then we got cell phones. And listen to this, youth. I didn't get a cell phone until I was a junior in college. Can you believe that? It's, it's okay. Anyway, didn't get a cell phone until I was a junior in college, right? And kids nowadays have cell phones in elementary school, smartphones. And then communication changed again. Instead of actually calling people, you know what we do now? We send text messages, and that's the way to communicate. So Alayla and Izzy typically don't call me. They text me, and that's how we communicate. And then communication changed again, and instead of texting now, Sometimes kids use social media, so they'll send a message on Facebook. And now communication is changing again, where people communicate using pictures like Snapchat. 
right? Am I right? Or musically, right? Am I right? That's how we communicate now. So communication changes over the time. People communicate differently today than when they did in the 50s and 60s. And I'm telling you, church, unless we learn to adapt, unless we learn to adapt to speaking a new cultural language, we won't be effective in sharing the gospel because the people can't hear it. It doesn't make sense to them, right? And I've had friends that I've invited to church, and they come to church sometimes, and they go, wow, I step into your building, I feel like it's 1960, and I step out, I feel like I'm in 2016. What happened, right? They don't, they don't get it. So communication changes, and the way we share the gospel, we have, to, we have to adapt so that people can hear it. And I'm excited to say that our church, I think, is doing a pretty good job with that. But there are ways to grow and to do better. So notice this text, and I, and I just find it so, so important. Utterly, they ama- utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? They spoke that Aramaic language. Then how is it each one of us hears them in our own native language? You see, in order for the people to hear, the church, the apostles, the disciples, had to speak the language of the people. You notice that those that were gathered, the Jews, didn't have to speak Aramaic. No, the church had to speak in their language. And if you look at the text, there might have been ten different languages that were being spoke so that the people could hear the gospel. And as a church, I always think about this. What are we saying or how are we communicating as a church How are we communicating to our seniors? What are we saying to them as a church? How are we communicating to our boomers? What language are we speaking to them? How are we communicating to our Gen Xers? What communication are we using to talk to them? How are we speaking to our millennials as a church? Are we even speaking to them as a church? What language do they understand? What are we saying to our young families? How do we communicate the gospel to them? How do we communicate the gospel to teens or to single people in the church? Or how do we speak to people of other races as a church? What are we saying to the LGBTQ community as a church? What are we saying to the poor as a church? What are we saying to widows as a church? What are we saying to prisoners and etc.? And the list goes on. You see, in order for them to be able to hear the gospel, we have to speak it in a way that makes sense to them. And a lot of times we just don't like to adapt. We're not good at adapting. And then we go, you know, this is just a season where where people aren't receptive to the gospel. That's all. Wide is the gate, narrow is the way. But when I read the Bible, the scripture tells me that the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. So we've got to be creative. God has given us a brain and intelligence and smarts. We've got to figure out how that we can talk to people in a language that they understand culturally today. And I will say that my fellowship is notoriously bad at that. Notoriously bad at that. But you know what? I think our church is doing pretty good. And this sermon is really just to encourage us to think about how to do that even more effectively. If you didn't know... We speak the Christian language. 
It's called Christianese. You never heard of it? Christianese. So we as Christians, we have a language that we speak that most of the world doesn't understand if you're not a Christian. We say things like uh, sanctification. I've been sanctified by the blood of the Lamb. People in the world are like, what are you talking about? Sanctification? We, we, we say uh, grace. And people go, I kind of don't understand that concept. We say mercy, right? What is that? I was talking to a neighbor friend of mine, and I said, we're having VBS at, at our church. She said, VBS? What is that? Right? We speak in a language that people don't understand, and we expect them to get it. But let me take it a step further. Not only do we have Christianese, a Christian language, we have a Church of Christ language, don't we? Am I right about it? Can I preach a little bit this morning? We have a Church of Christ language, don't we? And you have to know the codes in order to pass the test. Where's James this morning? James is visiting with us this morning. James is in the back there. And I put a test before him to see if he was really Church of Christ. This is terrible. I'm going to be transparent this morning. So James was in the, in the foyer out there, and uh, I walked up to James and said, James, how you doing? What brings you this way? He said, I was just in the area working, and I was looking for a church. And I said, okay, how do I figure out to see how to give him the test to make sure he's one of us, right? We all do it. Don't act like you don't do it. Don't act like you don't do it, right? So he was back there, and I said, James, so tell me about your church experience. He said, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian. And I said, are you a member of the church? You know what that means, doesn't it? If you grew up Church of Christ, you know what that means. Are you a member of the church? And he said, yes, I'm a member of the church. So it told me, okay, he might be Church of Christ. And I said, where you grow up going to church? He said, up in Los Angeles. You heard of the Normandy Figueroa? I said, okay, he passed. He's welcome. Come on in. Come on in. It's terrible, but I'm poking fun, but it's so true. Don't we, don't we say that? Are you a member of the church? And what we're really saying is, are you not a member of the kingdom of God, but are you a member of our tribe, the churches of Christ, right? So we speak a church of Christ language. What about this one? You've heard of the plan of salvation, haven't you? Right? So whenever you hear someone say plan of salvation, it's like ding, 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 you're church of Christ. Yes, we're here. We're here. Most of the world has no idea what the plan of salvation is. Other churches don't even know what the plan of salvation is, but we got it down and we speak a certain language, right? Here's another thing that we say, uh, our preacher is the preaching minister. People go, preaching minister? What is that? Or even, <laughs> even in a different way, we say evangelist. I, I remember I was at Fuller Theological Seminary in there with a whole bunch of preachers from different areas, and I said, yes, I am the evangelist of the Church of Christ in Sacramento. People say, evangelists? What are you talking about, right? So when we say evangelists or minister, people go, well, all of us are ministers and evangelists. Are you saying you're the pastor or what, what's going on? So we have a language, a Church of Christ language that the world doesn't understand. And under that umbrella, we have a Christian language. What about potluck? Does anybody know what a potluck is today? But I said, we having a potluck. She said, a what? <laughs> a potluck. Huh? We've adapted a little bit, and Alicia says we have fellowship luncheons now, right? So that helps a little bit. But we have this language, if you notice, as Christians and as members of the Church of Christ, that the world just does not seem to understand. And unless we adapt the way we communicate, when it comes to non-essential things, of course, unless we adapt the way we communicate, we'll never be able to reach people. They won't be able to hear the message, 
So the question I have for you this morning, and I'm getting kind of long, take out your, your sermon outlines and your bulletins. You guys fill out some of these notes that are uh, going to be presented here this morning. I've got some ideas. Here you go. The question that I want to pose to you today is, how do you learn a new language? How do you learn a new language? And I would love to spend the time going across the auditorium today and asking those of you whose first language wasn't English how you were able to pick up English. You'd probably tell me some really amazing stories. So how do you learn a new language? Or here's the second question to that. How do we grow our church family? That's really the question. How do we learn a new language? Because if we learn a new language and we're able to communicate the gospel message and people can hear, that'll help grow our church family. So it's a twofold question. But what I put down is how do you learn a new language? The first one, if you want to learn a new language, is you have to be educated, right? So I wanted to learn how to speak Spanish when I was in high school. So what I did is I took Spanish classes and I picked up on a couple of words and how I did that is the teacher would teach and I would listen to what she said I would study the words I would study the writing and I was able to pick it up it took studying so if we want to be able to communicate the gospel message in this new postmodern culture we have to study the culture but we don't like studying the culture we don't we say the culture needs to adapt to us right I, had, I, 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 got, I got hurt a little bit recently. Many of you saw the Christian Chronicle article, right? And it talked about uh, some of the ministry that I'm doing, um, doing Christian hip-hop as a way to communicate the gospel to young people, in particular minorities that listen to that type of music. People wrote me this week uh, emails and messages on social media saying to me that you're becoming contaminated by the world. Some person told me I was going to hell. Can you believe that? Remember the church. You're going to hell. Why do you do that? Right? And it really bothered me. But what I've been trying to do through this ministry is study the culture, figure out how people communicate, what resonates with them, what do they hear, and I preach the gospel using that avenue, and it's been working. But people say you're becoming like the world, and you shouldn't do that. And some of y'all know what I'm talking about because some of your friends called you. What's that preacher doing over there at the Church of Christ over there that you go with? What's he doing? <laughs> but we have to educate ourselves on what the culture is doing, how they're speaking, so that we can communicate the gospel to them. Anyway, next point. Education, listening and study the culture. Number two is this. Embed yourself in the culture. Where's Jamie? Is Jamie here this morning? No, Almond. Okay. Got it, got it. Jamie told me a really uh, interesting story. She said, you know, when I first got to the States, I couldn't speak a lick of English at all. She said, I taught myself how to speak English. And if you ever talk to Jamie, she speaks perfect English. And I said, well, how did you learn how to do this? She said, look, I could have studied. I could have sat down. And, and, and she said, what I did is I moved to the States and I started working at a hair salon. A hair salon. She said, yeah, I was at a hair salon, and the ladies, all they did was talk, 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 talk. And she said, I learned how to speak English by embedding myself in that culture. And she speaks it well. And I thought that was so, so neat. She said, if I wanted to learn this language, look, I had to just throw myself into it and pick it up as I went. 
So as a church, if we're going to learn to share the gospel message with people so that they can hear it, we can't be afraid of the culture. Jesus says be in the world but not of the world, right? You've got to be there with people. And then you can pick up and learn. What else? Education. Embed yourself. Yes. Man, thank you, Philly. <laughs> Let me tell you, tell you what you just did, okay, that I think is so powerful. We don't get up and speak during the sermons. <laughs> so you didn't pass the Church of Christ test, okay, brother? <laughs> and I can say that to Billy. We went and visited Billy. Billy has an amazing story. And I tell you what, Billy, we are moved by your presence here, brother. We are moved by it. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for sharing this more. We really appreciate you. Really appreciate you. Really appreciate you. Navy SEAL, na hardcore Navy SEAL, for 20-plus years. Okay, you got to hear a story. Anyway, can I get back to my sermon now, or are you going to come up and say something? All right, let's, let's corral this thing in. Here we go. Um, this feels like a, 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 a first century moment, doesn't it? Second century moment. Powerful. Another thing, Billy, that we think about is uh, if you wanted to learn to speak the language, you've got to befriend somebody. You've got to find a friend. And that's what Ed was talking about this morning, really. He said, look, if you want to reach people, you've got to spend time with people and build friendships and through building friendships, you can hear about the need that they might have or the void that they might have. Spend time with people and say, hey, okay, I can figure out what you need and what you're going through right now. And I have an answer. And the answer is found in Jesus Christ. We've got to befriend people, spend time. All I'm saying, church, look, if we want to communicate the gospel message, we've got to be in culture. We can't be afraid of culture. We can't be afraid of culture. We can't live in our own sanctified, monastic community. Sanctification is great, but this monastic idea where we stay over here and stay away, we can't do that. And what I'm so proud about is that at the Mission Viejo Church of Christ, I know we have people here that are not afraid of culture. We have people here that are not afraid of culture. And I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. But that's how people are going to be able to hear the gospel. Lastly, uh, we need to make sure we use technology. Mike, back there does an amazing job with our technology. Would you agree? Would you agree? Mike does a phenomenal job. Phenomenal job. 
phenomenal job. I hear it all the time from other churches. Who's your media guy? Wow, you guys are using live stream. Wow, you're doing video. You got PowerPoint. Look at your website. And I know a number of you who are here today because you saw the church website or you saw a live stream or you saw something like that, and that's what brought you here today. We got to make sure that we use technology, right? If you're going to learn a language, they have something called Rosetta Stone. Anybody take Rosetta Stone, right? And you get online and you click buttons and you learn to speak the language. Don't be afraid of technology. We use technology. Technology is a tool to share the gospel, right? I remember a few years ago, uh, there was a transition where churches were no longer using those boards where you slide the numbers in. You remember? 368, 427. And then on this side was the offering, right? It'd be like $50. You'd be really embarrassed when a visitor came, right? And I remember, do you guys remember the argument where we transitioned from using those to PowerPoint? It was a theological problem, wasn't it? That's entertainment. That is entertainment, right? That's entertainment. And we were so scared of it. I know churches now that are still scared of it. I think God gives us technology for us to use it as a tool to spread the gospel message. Uh, World Bible School, right? World Bible School. The Marsh family, the Marshes, right? World Bible School. Technology is important. We've got to use those things in order to share the gospel. Let's continue on. I'm almost done here. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. Here's something that I think is so powerful. I want to read this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What do you mean? When they were able to hear the language, the message in a language, that made sense to them when they were able to hear it, they were cut to the heart. That's what the gospel does. It cuts you to the heart. It cuts you to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And we all know Acts 2.38 in the churches of Christ, don't we? Repent and be baptized. Right? We know that one. We know that one. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the what? Forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Powerful text. We grew up, this is one of those Bible verses that you remembered in Bible class, right? They would quiz you on it at LTC and, you know, all those places. This was the verse that you were supposed to know. So you can tell if somebody's really church Christ if they know Acts 2.38. And they're really a good church of Christ if they know it in the King James. Amen. What's so interesting about this text is it says, when the Jews heard the message in a way that made sense to them, they were cut to the heart. You know, they were cut to the heart. Do you know what the gospel does when people are able to hear it in a way that makes sense to them? They are cut to the heart. You know what Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12 says? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's what the gospel does. It's powerful. It's life-changing. It cuts people. That's what the gospel does. And there are two responses. I often question you, I always think about this. What does it mean to be cut to the heart? There's two ways to process what it means to be cut to the heart. Number one, you're cut to the heart by hearing the gospel message. When you hear it, it makes you feel so guilty. You remember when you first decided to give your life to the Lord and you heard about Jesus and all the things he did for you and you heard this wonderful gospel story and you realized that you were full of sin 
You realize how guilty you were. You realize how low you were. And you realize how great God was and how loving he was. And it made you go, wow, Lord, you did all of that for me. I'm just guilty and I've got to get my life right. That's one response. It makes you feel guilty and it makes you want to do something to change your life. The second one is this. When you hear the gospel, it cuts you to the heart and it cuts you so bad that you get angry. That's how sharp the gospel is. People get angry at the gospel. Either you repent and you feel that godly sorrow or you get mad. This gospel thing is not true. This church thing, church is full of hypocrites. I can't stand the preacher. Did you hear what he said on Sunday? That church over there, these Christian people, this is how they are. Two responses. And that's what it means to be cut to the heart. And that's what the gospel does. And what I love about this text so much is when the people heard the message, they said, you know what? What do I need to do today? Peter said, repent and be baptized. And they went and did it. Can you believe that? They, they just went and did it. They didn't say, well, what's the theological implications of baptism? Do I have to be sprinkled or do I have to be poured on? Or What is repentance anyway, right? They just went and did it. They didn't say, okay, so are you saved prior? What about the sinner's prayer, right? Can't we just say that? No, they just went and did it. And that's what God wants from his people. Just go and do it. It's simple. Repent and be baptized. And then you'll have forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Last text. Acts chapter 2, and verse number 44, and then we're going to close this morning. Scripture says this, the believers were together and had everything in common. And there's so much more in this whole text, right? We know this. There's so much more, and I'm just hitting on a couple of points. Acts chapter 2, verse number 44. I, I thought this was a typo at first. All the believers were together and had everything in common? When's the last time you've been around a group of people where everybody agreed on everything? That just doesn't happen, does it? right? But they were together and had everything in common. How could this be? You mean there were no church fights over color of the carpet or that song that we sing or this or that? Everybody was together? How was this the case? So I want to leave you with this as we close this morning as I step down. I think the real idea here is, okay, we know how to share the gospel. We've got to share it in a way that makes sense to the culture so they can hear it and they can repent. And then as we come together as a church family, we can't just stop there. What are, what are, we, what are we called to do? We're called to grow closer together, and that's what we see in Acts chapter 2 from this church. They grew closer together. So I want to leave you with a practical application this morning on how I think we as a church can grow closer together. And you'll be surprised here. You'll be surprised, I think, by how many things that we're already doing right at this church. It's pretty neat, okay? So you can fill this out on your outline. How can we grow closer together as a church? Well, you know, the scripture says in uh, the previous text, they grew, they came together and they grew. And what they did is verse number 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread. So you want to know how we can grow closer together as a church? There's three things right there. Number one, be devoted to the teaching or study together. That's what it says. Study together as a church. Number two, what else? We've got to fellowship as a church. 
fellowship as a church, spend time with each other. And that's what we do on Sunday mornings. We come together and we listen to the the word being preached in Bible class and then during our sermons, and we get to see each other and hug on each other and ask how we're doing. This is wonderful. This is fellowship here. And then it says we need to, or they came together and and they had the breaking of bread and prayer. So what they did is they took the communion, and this can not only apply just to communion, but to those potlucks and those fellowship luncheons that we have. Those are vitally important to the church. I was talking to Carl about that this morning. He said, Jason, I remember a time where we were doing our fellowship luncheons almost weekly, it seemed like it, right? And people were coming, and they were loving it. And we saw the church produce fruit, and it was growing, and people were really loving on each other. It's wonderful. Don't you love when we have those potlucks or those fellowship luncheons? We get to sit down and enjoy one another's company. That's what you do to keep a church close together. And then it goes on to say this, Verse 33, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done the apostles, and all the believers had everything in common. Verse number 45, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had a need. What else can the church do to grow close together? Not only do we study, do we fellowship, do we eat together, but we serve one another. And the question I have for you this morning is, are we helping each other out as a church? If I know you have a need, Am I going to help you with that need? Number one, do I even know that you have a need? Is there something going on in your life that you need help with? You need the church's support there? You've had some financial or spiritual or emotional or whatever difficulties? We're supposed to be there for one another. So when I look at you, I know you have my back. If I go through anything, I know there's some people here that I can call and that can come and help me out. I know it. And if we're going to be close as a church, that's what we got to make sure we do. We serve one another. We help each other, and it's sincerely. So if you need something, you know where to call. And if I need something, I know where to call. But oftentimes, I I think sometimes we don't have those relationships with people. But we should. That's what church family does. We serve each other. And then lastly, it says, every day they continue to meet together. Every day. That's kind of tough. I get that. We all have jobs and things of that nature. It might not be as easy today. Every day they met together in temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I think this is really important. You know, the church, early church, they did gather at the temple. They had a big place where they could come together. But oftentimes they met in each other's homes. You know what that tells me? You know what I think it talks about? The importance of small groups. I think it talks about the importance of small groups. And I know small groups get a bad name, don't they? Right? I heard someone once say sometimes in small groups it can turn into a vent party. Not an event, a vent party, right? Or a complaining session. But there's something about small groups that connects us in a very, very special way. And I think that's what we're trying to do at our church here. We have connect groups that are designed to break down and be smaller. But there's something about being together in each other's homes that really does it for me. When you invite me into your house, you know what I know you did? I know you cleaned up before I got here. I know there was clothes and dishes everywhere, so you put forth some effort to clean. I know you did, right? And then you work really hard to to prepare that meal. And and, and there's something about being inside of someone's home that makes you feel like, wow, I appreciate you opening up the doors and letting me be here with you. And then if you're a host, a host, when you open up your home, isn't there something powerful about letting people see you as you are in your house, right? 
There's something about welcoming someone inside of your home, sitting down and talking God with them that is so special. Small groups are important, and I think they were important to the early church, and I think that's why the church was able to grow. And in small groups, we really get to know each other, don't we? Really. We see each other as we are. So as we close this morning, Acts chapter 2, I know it was kind of long this morning. I think Acts chapter 2 really has a special message for our church this morning. I think we do a pretty good job in a lot of areas when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. But I want to remind you that the culture is ever-changing, and we've got to keep up our strategies. We've got to figure out how, whenever we go into a culture, to learn how to speak the language of the culture if we want people to hear the gospel message. And then lastly, as we invite them into our church, our church should be a close-knit family where we really love each other and we know we can really count on each other whenever we go through hardships or difficulties or have tough times. And if we do that, church, I think we'll be an Acts chapter 2 church, and I don't think, <laughs> I don't think anything will stop this church from bursting at the seams. Bursting at the seams. We have a song of invitation selected this morning. If there is anyone here that needs to respond to the message, maybe you want to put the Lord on in baptism this morning. Maybe you want to repent and be baptized and have your sins and iniquities washed away and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can do that this morning. Be like the early disciples that didn't say, maybe I'll wait until next week. Or maybe I'll wait to be a better Sunday then. They said, what do I need to do? I'm going to do it right now. You have the opportunity to give your life to the Lord right now. This morning, if you are a Christian and you've been falling short, or you've been neglecting the commission, you've been neglecting that evangelistic piece, this message is for, for you as well. Whatever your needs and concerns are, won't you come together while we stand and sing Song of Invitation?